Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a number of items that don't appear in the headlines, but I think they're important for people to know. And they have to do with the uh, other countries and their relationship to Israel, particularly when we're going now through a war, a war and the end of which we don't see in sight. First of all, I want to say something about our relationship with Germany. The German vice chancellor named Dr. Robert Habeck visited Israel a week ago, and he said Israel has every right to defend itself against Hamas. And uh, he said this at a meeting with our economy minister near Barkat, and Barkat uh, criticized the International Court of Justice, uh, which went through this um, a, a trial, I guess you would call it, in the Hague last week, because it's as biased against Israel. And he expressed uh, a lot of concern about the court's actions because uh, anti-Israel sentiment has become the new form of anti-Semitism. And uh, that's an important point that he made. In other words, years ago they were playing old anti-Semites, but now they say they're simply uh, anti-Israel. But they're really anti-Semites. And the uh, German chancellor emphasized Germany's unwavering support for Israel's right of self-defense. And he said uh, the importance of ensuring Israel's security in the face of threats. He said, and I quote, we must ensure the atrocities of September 7th never recur. And on behalf of all Germans, we stand in solidarity with Israel. Israel's right to safeguard its citizens' lives is paramount. And in this, we stand united. So that's what the uh, the uh, vice chancellor of Germany said. It's something that gets almost no headlines here in Israel. I found it in a small article on the back pages of one of the papers, but I think it's important. And the other one about another country, we have pretty much the opposite happening. I'm talking about Australia. The um, the Australian foreign minister, a lady named Penny Wong. Uh, was supposed to visit Israel uh, next week, and it'll be her first visit to the Middle East, and she will also visit the Palestinian Authority. Now, it's no doubt that this visit will be difficult for her. And this is because Israel, I'm sorry, because Australia is divided in support for Israel and its support for Gaza. Although most Australians were pro-Israel three months ago, after the Hamas attack on October 7th, many are now pro-Gaza and think more humanitarian aid should be directed to Gaza. And in October 2022, 
Australia actually reversed a decision taken four years earlier to recognize West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. In other words, Australia today does not recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. So following the Hamas assault a couple of months ago, a lot of uh, world leaders paid solidarity visit to Israel, but the Australian Prime Minister, uh, a gentleman named Anthony Albanese, has declined to visit Israel and support Israel. Now, Albanese is widely regarded as being pro-Palestinian, uh, after he became Deputy Prime Minister in 2013, he founded an organization called the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine. Though other uh, Australian administrations have uh, been critical of Israel in the past, none has gone so far in demonstrating friendship for the Palestinians, although uh, Australia has long supported efforts toward a two-state solution. So it's interesting, Germany, our history with Germany, of course, is one that's very well known. Germany is supportive 100% of Israel, while Australia, an Anglo-Saxon country, which was once supportive of Israel, has now reversed its support and is now pretty much pro-Palestinian. So these are small news items, one about Germany and one about Australia, but I think it's important for the listeners to know uh, what these particular countries are, their feelings are regarding Israel. So that's why I, uh, I search for these kind of articles to find out things that don't get the headlines, but I think they're really quite important and people should know about them. By the way, along the same lines, there's something else which I think is interesting. Again, it doesn't get the headlines. Uh, the uh, the International Court, the International uh, Court of Justice, met last week, and um, turned out that large uh, demonstrations took place. Uh, there were Israeli supporters, and there were pro-Palestinian groups, and uh, they would they faced each other. Uh, right near the uh, International Court of Justice. There were thousands of pro-Israeli protesters. They were singing songs and carrying Dutch and Israeli flags, and they marched to the gates of the Peace Palace in the Hague uh, during these hearings that were taking place. And among the Israelis were relatives of people kidnapped or killed during the uh, the border attack on the 7 sevens. So uh, the uh, today there there are absurd accusations against Israel that's committing genocide, while Hamas is committing crimes against humanity every day. Uh, and so there again, there are also pro-Palestinian groups, and they they watch the proceedings on a large screen, less than a hundred meters away from the Israeli group. And they lit red and green smoke flares and chanted slogans. So obviously, they, they had to keep these groups apart, so the Dutch riot police kept the two groups separated. And um, so uh, no serious incidents were reported. The uh, so, so we had pro-Palestinian protesters, Dutch protesters, 
and you had uh, pro-Israeli Dutch uh, protests, including uh, Israelis there also, including families of the uh, people who were captured and still being held. So pro and as I said, the, the bottom line is that pro and anti-Israeli groups had rallies outside the UN genocide hearings, and it, these are the kind of things that don't get headlines. Well, I think it's important for the listeners to know about these things. Now I want to switch the subject slightly. It's more than a hundred days since Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. So the question is asks itself, there are a tremendous number of Jewish Americans who feel unsafe. Why? I think it's because they've seen this before, because criticism of Israel is used as a cover for anti-Semitism. After Hamas fired rockets into Israel back in 2021, there were two weeks of conflict after that, and during that time, anti-Semitism in America increased. When suicide bombers killed more than a thousand innocent Israelis during the Second Intifada back in the early 2000s, tremendous increase in domestic anti-Semitism occurred in the United States. A famous Irish diplomat named Conor Cruz O'Brien once remarked that anti-Semitism is a light sleeper. It awakes easily. And he was correct. The All of a sudden, a lot of people seem to have become anti-Semites after October 7th of this year. Where were they before October 7th? So we have to assume that there was a lot of latent anti-Semitism just beneath the surface, and it was looking for an excuse, or it was waiting for an excuse to pop up. It's no wonder that a, a survey was done by the American Jewish community and it said that 78% of American Jews who heard anything about Hamas's attack are feeling less safe. The American Jews are feeling less safe since uh, October 7th. In the 10 largest American cities, Jews are now the most targeted group following a surge of anti-Semitic hate crimes. One expert predicts the FBI's 2023 hate crimes report will likely show a record number of anti-Jewish incidents in the United States. Now, the uh, understandably, some have taken the painful step of hiding their Jewishness. They're covering their kippot by wearing hats. They're concealing or not wearing Star of David necklaces. And it's been told that there are reported 
that are even Jews resist removing mezuzot from their doors of their homes. Now, regardless of what is happening, we can find strength, I believe, that we can find unity in the Jewish communities in the United States. Right now, Jews are showing up for one another with all kinds of planes of supplies for Israel. Volunteers are coming to Israel to support those on the front lines. Uh, the, they're providing shelter and comfort to those who've lost their homes here and to most of those who have faced unimaginable horror. I have heard myself from relatives that I forgot even existed. I hadn't heard from them in over 35 years. And now they're, all, they're in weekly contact with me since October 7th. The president of Israel has spoke before an American Jewish community last year, and he said, I am adamantly passionate about the story of the Jewish people we are a small nation of about 15 million Jews around the globe. And the world contains something like 8 billion people. But we are a small group, but we have a role to play, we have a story to tell, and therefore we should protect and preserve the unity, uh, unity of our people amidst all the difference among us. That's what the president of Israel said. I quote it. I agree with it 100%. There's no two ways about it. We are one people no matter where we are. You know, I think the listeners um, who have experienced my program know that I like to find items that are really under the headlines and uh, they don't get much coverage, but I think they're important to know. And uh, it turns out that Germany, Hungary, um, are, and Hungary are granting citizenship to hostages with family ties in their countries. What's happened is that the governments of Germany and Hungary have approved citizenship and issued passports to Jewish-Israeli hostages in Gaza. Some of the hostages who received German and Hungarian passports were freed in exchange for Israel's release of convicted Palestinian terrorists and criminals recently. Other Jewish-Israeli hostages have received Hungarian and German citizenship and are still being held hostage. The Israelis who received passports have family members who were born in the Central European countries. So it turns out that dual citizenship could play a role in these complex negotiations to rescue the hostages, because then you, you might have intervention of foreign states who are seeking to protect their citizens. So if Germany or Hungary gives citizenship to somebody who's now held hostage, then these countries can say, well, we want to do what we can to get our citizens free. Now, it's unclear 
when the hostages were provided with German and Hungarian passports, the according to the authorities at the moment, there are 136 Israeli hostages in Gaza. So what happens is, if you think about it, foreign countries that issue passports to hostages in Gaza can actually provide a layer of protection to the victims. The um, for example, in 2018, Sweden awarded citizenship to an Iranian hostage, a medical doctor, and a lecturer at, the, at an institute in Stockholm. This person, his name was Jalali, but he was arrested in 2016 in Iran and convicted of espionage and what was widely condemned as a show trial. He hasn't been executed, and it is unclear if his Swedish citizenship is impending, is impeding Tehran's desire to execute him. So, on November 8th this year, Hamas was holding hostages from at least 28 countries beside Israel. Asked about European uh, countries awarding Israeli Jews with passports, a spokesman for uh, Israel's foreign ministry refused to comment. Also, the German foreign ministry refused to comment, and uh, Hungary's foreign ministry also didn't comment. Now, the... uh, Back in late October, Fox News reported about American organizations urging Germany, Austria, and the United States to issue passports to these hostages. So it's interesting. Uh, At time, they feel it's time the governments to do what Wallenberg did. If you know your history, remember Raoul Wallenberg during the Second World War issues uh, Swedish passports to Jews in Hungary to save them. And uh, Jews might be safe from Hamas if they have double citizenship. And as I said, Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat who saved the lives of about 20,000 Hungarian Jews during the Holocaust. He issued what are called protective passports to the Jews who were identified as Swedish subjects to be repatriated. So the idea of giving foreign um, passports to these people who are being held by Hamas is an idea that was started back in the Second World War. And who knows, this might end up being a a humanitarian service provided by European countries. So... um, Never can tell strange things happen. At any rate, uh, I touched upon a bunch of little off-the-record items that you don't find with big headlines, but I think they give a picture of what's happening here in Israel. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. 
Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Several weeks ago, the nation of South Africa brought a case in the International Court of Justice against Israel. And uh, the, uh, there was a lot of uh, talk about uh, Israel's defense and what happened at the court. But I want to say something about South Africa, the country which brought Israel to court. South Africa is a country in very bad shape. The uh, It's run by a group of people who have no idea how to run the government. In, I visited South Africa about 25 years ago, right after the white government was taken over by a black government. It was a rather nice place, but things have changed. For example, there are ports at Durban and Cape Town and which cannot handle incoming cargo ships since the cranes have not been maintained, resulting at the moment of 70 ships, 70 ships waiting outside Durban to offload their cargo, and they're in dire need of attention. Ships that may be diverted from the Red Sea which they are now, since the Red Sea has become problematic. There are ships coming from the Far East that are now going around Africa because they can't go through the Suez Canal. And if they're diverted from the Red Sea, they'll go around South Africa, and it would be a lucrative source of income. But the South African government is more interested in its own agenda rather than doing good business. For example, roads, rail transport, hospitals, schools, any state-owned enterprises in South Africa are riddled with corruption, and they are mostly non-functioning. Today, South Africa is rated as one of the most dangerous countries in the world. There are at least 70 murders, and 73 rapes every single day of the week. House break-ins are an ongoing concern, and I remember when I was in South Africa, the members of the Jewish community had their homes protected with large gates and guards. So anybody walk along any street in broad daylight could be killed simply just to steal a cell phone. And and South Africa is befriending all the wrong other nations like China and Iran. There's always been, they've always been friendly with Russia and Cuba and other uh, dictatorships. And uh, they were always a guest of the African National Congress, which runs the country. Accusing Israel of genocide as as South Africa did in the international uh, court, is without foundation or merit. Furthermore, 
It's antagonizing a substantial section of international Jewish investors. And that is definitely not a smart move. South Africa today has effectively no infrastructure. The hospitals, the roads, the ports, the railroads, everything is in chaos. It's quite absurd that this nation, which it's called itself, by, by the way, the Rainbow Nation, it's quite absurd that it should legitimize Hamas, which started the war in October 7th, as merely a cheap shot at gaining more votes for the failed policy. Also, South Africa is suffering an energy crisis, which led to this worst power blackouts the country has seen uh, in 2023. There's many as six hours a day without power. Uh, there's no water due to corruption. There's a lack of maintenance of power equipment. And this, is, this is applies to all state-owned enterprises in South Africa. The trains, the ports, the post office, and uh, uh, the, uh, it, it's interesting how uh, over the years, after the country changed the rule 25 or 30 years ago, experienced white engineers were replaced by untrained black people who got exorbitant salaries, and all they've managed to do is corrupt their organizations and enrich themselves. The uh, the South Africa, which took Israel to court, is effectively bankrupt with its own problems. The, uh, the Nigerians and Somalians and Zimbabweans have come into the country because there's no controlled borders. And these people who come in mostly control drug rings, sex trafficking, and money laundering syndicates. So... Bribery and corruption destroy destroy healthcare and everything else. So the the action that South Africa took against Israel is uh, in the International Court of Justice is purely political, and a bit to gain more votes among Palestinians and coloreds living there in South Africa. The, the South Africa has no business with Israel, and in fact, the president wanted to close the Israeli embassy. And there, there have been riots in South Africa at shops stocking Israeli products. The, uh, the, the, the tenure of the African National Congress in South Africa has been catastrophic has caused irreparable damage to South Africa and its international standing. And yet this country, South Africa, took Israel to the international court. So the, the whole thing is ridiculous. Is Israel's case before the international court of justice should be exposed, should be used to expose the fact that the, uh, the, the South Africa is certainly not the country to do such a thing. The whole thing is a bad joke. The, it's interesting 
how they how they choose justices in South Africa. It's completely immoral. The, the South Africa has no moral authority to stand in judge, judgment over any democracy, especially Israel. And as far as the United Nations is concerned, the United Nations anti-Israel bias and obsession with the world's only Jewish state and with the only free democracy in the Middle East makes it quite clear. The, it's interesting that the General Assembly of the UN has more condemnations of Israel than the rest of the world combined. For example, 2022, 15 resolutions passed against Israel and not a single resolution passed on the human rights situations in China or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Turkey, Egypt, Zimbabwe, Pakistan, Qatar, Vietnam, and Algeria. And by the way, Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Myanmar, that used to be Burma, each received a total of one. The, the, at the UN Human Rights Council, the, they, it, it has adopted 103 revolutions in 17 years condemning Israel and zero resolutions for countries guilty of real human rights violations, China, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, that the International Court of Justice that heard the case against Israel, the, the, the judges hearing the case come from serious human rights abusers like China and Lebanon, where, where Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy, uh, and, and which is fighting Israel in the current war, is the key member of the government in Lebanon. So what you have here is pretty much what you can call a theater of the absurd. That's what it is. Uh, that, that the very fact that Israel can be brought before the International Court of Justice to face charges related to its national security, the, the Israel is fighting terror. Terror that's financed and supported by countries like Iran with the declared intent of waging war not just against Israel, but also against the West. And they, they're trying to destroy the values upon which free democracies are actually built. For constitutional democracies like Israel, one of the few constitutional democracies, democracies outside of the West, to, for constitutional democracies to submit themselves to the judgment of UN institu institutions, is simply ludicrous. Israel stands no chance of a fair trial, and the truth of the matter is that Israel should take no part in this, in this International Court of Justice charade, other than to cite some of the statistics about other countries. It's interesting, back in 1948, when the State of Israel came into being, the Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion agreed for Israel to join the Geneva Conventions, 
And it was not on the understanding that the UN would become a a pool of anti-Semitism that would twist the genocide clause to put Israel's right to defense on trial. Israel is now in the midst of a multi-front war for survival, nothing less. The, the, the gross bias of the United Nations against Israel places it in a breach of all the agreements signed at the establishment of the Jewish state to accept the authority of the International Court of Justice. Israel agreed to have the International Court of Justice adjudicate its actions, but the time, I think, has come for Israel to walk away from that decision. The world today is not what they thought the UN would make it. If no UN body can exercise authority over Israel, or for that matter, any free society, the uh, and media and opinion people in the free world should become very much more circumspect on the credibility they grant UN institutions. The the global alliance built after the Second World War simply have failed. The uh, I remember all these things, and the the UN uh, uh, ambassador that the the ambassador of Israel to the UN at that time was Chaim Herzog, who later became Israel's president in 1975, and I remember this quite clearly. He addressed the UN General Assembly on the eve of another one of the many fits of anti-Semitism. They were about to pass the uh, resolution called Zionism is Racism. It was passed. Eventually it was uh, done away with when it was passed. And the uh, UN, uh, uh, Chaim Herzog, who represented Israel, and I remember this very clearly because I attended, at that time I attended a rally at the UN against this resolution. At any rate, uh, Israel's representative, Herzog, made a long speech, and he said something that really rang. He said the following, I stand here not as a supplicant, for the issue is not Israel or Zionism. The issue is the continued existence of the United Nations organization, which has been dragged to its lowest point of discredit by a coalition of despotism and racists. He went on to further say the following, this resolution based on hatred, falsehood, and arrogance is devoid of any moral or legal value. For us, the Jewish people, there, this is no more than a piece of paper and we shall treat it as such. And then, standing at the at the at the head of the, uh, the speaker's roster at the United Nations, he tore up the resolution at the rostrum of the UN. And the truth of the matter is, what the International Court of Justice is doing now should be torn up the same way, because the stakes are pretty high. The fate of the entire world is really at stake. You know, it's interesting. 
The Talmud says Pirkei Ovis, which we say on Shabbat, particularly in the summertime, we say the world stands on three things, justice, truth, and peace. God has created the world such that without justice, truth, and peace, there can be no human civilization. First, you must have justice and truth, and only then can there be peace. About uh, 1,800 years ago, the ancient and eternal capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem, the sages of the Talmud explained that without justice and truth, there can be no peace. It was true then, it is true today. And therefore, Israel must stand firm against any intimidation of the United Nations and the so-called International Court of Justice. Israel has to stand firm in the name of justice and truth. The justice and truth without which there can be no peace. So, and these other countries are holding up Israel, bringing Israel to court in a twisted form of justice that simply makes no sense. That's what happened, and we have to keep reminding ourselves of the situation. Israel must do what is needed to do in order to bring peace to our own borders. We do not have to listen. We dare not listen to the judgment of any other nation. On, in, on, uh, on October 7th, we were attacked terribly, such a way that has not happened to the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It is our duty, no matter how long it takes, to do away with our enemies, to destroy our enemies. We live in a world, unfortunately, where you have to bring your own justice. You cannot let others judge what is meaningful to you. I hate to have to repeat this kind of thing, but we have to keep reminding ourselves who we are, where we come from, what our history is. We cannot let others make any judgments about us. It is costly. It is time-consuming. It is often painful. But we have been through worse periods when we could not defend ourselves. In my own lifetime, there was a Holocaust. We now can defend ourselves. We must defend ourselves. And we cannot, cannot allow others to pass judgment on us. We decide ourselves what justice is for the Jewish people. And that's the bottom line, no matter what the rest of the world says. I'll be back after the break. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight Talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. 
I want to say a few words about the United Nations. When I was a kid, right after the Second World War, the United Nations came into being, and I remember sitting in school and hearing speeches being made by the founding conference of the United Nations. I think it took place in San Francisco, and it was considered the hope of the world. And uh, I remember in those days, the uh, they didn't have television yet. We used to listen to the radio, and uh, the uh, they actually called all the. I was going to public school. Public school at the time, they gathered all of the kids in the auditorium to hear speeches from the UN, and uh, we were kids. But of course, we convinced after the Second World War that peace had come to the world. Well, it turns out that we were wrong because the United Nations has turned out to be bankrupt in every possible way, particularly morally. It is ineffective, and it, if it had a mission to bring about peace in the world, and it has failed utterly. According to... Uh, the uh, available data, there have been 470 wars that have uh, happened in the last 76 years. Many of these wars have been catastrophic. Each war killed over a million people each. Some of these wars, I'm sure people don't even remember where they were and to whom they happened. But just to rename, uh, name a couple, there was the Second Congo War, Soviet-Afghan Wars, more than one, the Bangladesh Civil War, the Nigerian Civil War, the uh, Korean War, which I remember. I had a brother-in-law who was killed in the Korean War. The Vietnam War, which was uh, when I was already an adult, and it, uh, it lasted for years. There was a uh, Sudanese Civil War, all kind of wars. The bottom line is there have been close to 500 wars since the UN was established to prevent wars. The UN has not protected victims of genocide, it hasn't protected victims of human rights violations, and it has pretty much turned the blind eye of the crimes perpetrated by these big countries like China, uh, Iran, and even in South America, Venezuela, North Korea, and millions of people have been displaced in places like Rwanda and Syria, and a few other places. So the UN has totally failed to live up to the goals of maintaining peace and security, protecting human rights, and forcing cooperation among nations. It has failed in all these things. The UN was established in 1945, and I remember it, 
and had a noble vision to ensure international peace and security, dialogue among nations, cooperation, all the good things that you can think of. Yet, over the years, the UN has deviated from its vision and essentially it has betrayed its founding principles. It's a stage, uh, a playground for dictators who wanted to expand their power, influence the world, and essentially undermine the real democracies that exist in the world. There are few, few democracies and are always being undermined by the other nations. So the UN has lost its moral authority and it's, it, it pretty much is a hindrance and it's a burden for the progress of peace and freedom. On a practical level, it has failed to achieve any of its goals. There's this long list of wars, which I mentioned, and genocides that the UN didn't prevent or could not prevent or didn't attempt to prevent. If the UN were a business, it would have gone bankrupt long ago. If it was a country, it would have faced a revolution. The UN is a complex institution, survives on inertia, and it persists. Now, the interesting, by the way, one of the most glaring examples of the UN's moral decay is the appointment of Iran as the head of the Conference of Democracy which is a body that's supposed to promote democratic values and practices around the world. And the head of it is now the representative of Iran. Now, this is not the first time that the UN has given a voice to tyrants and dictators, but it really stands out. It shows what a joke it is. It's a bad joke. The UN's moral bankruptcy was also evident because back in 2018, it appointed Iran as the first vice chair of a something called the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And interestingly, some of the most notorious women's rights abusers like Iran and Yemen and Afghanistan have been chosen or assigned to participate in various UN bodies and committees that are supposed to protect women's rights. So, the of all the things that the UN is biased and hypocritical about is its relation to Israel. The UN is supposed to protect human rights around the world, and yet, the UN has adopted more resolutions against Israel than any other country in the world and has singled out Israel as the only country subject to permanent agenda item. Little Israel gets more attention at the UN than many of the other countries altogether. So it has... Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, one of the few democracies in the world. And by 
undermining Israel, they're undermining Western civilization and the free world, because Israel is part of Western civilization and the free world. So Israel is the victim more than any other nation of double standards. So there, there are those who feel that Israel should withdraw from the UN and lead some kind of initiative to create some kind of new institution with other democracies that share the same values. So uh, I don't know what this could be. I have no idea, but I, I see people talking about since the UN has failed, something should be created in its place, but the something should include only democracies. See, uh, the, uh, the some some people might argue, for example, that if Israel left the UN, Israel would become isolated from the international community and expose it to its enemies. So there are also, also those who say that it's the UN recognition that it gives Israel sovereignty legitimacy. However, there are many people who believe and I believe also Israel's standing in the world is not based on the UN or its membership in the UN. It's based on the shared values it has with other Western democracies like the United States. I want to change the subject and say a few words about something which is called identity politics. Democracies all around the world, and there aren't that many, the, they are pretty much struggling towards what we call post-liberal politics. And the, you, you find that people now are identifying themselves by their ethnic, their religious, and their political views. In other words, People are defining their politics by their identity. So that's the way things are in the world today. You see it? So Israel's going to have to do some kind of a restart after this war is over, take a better part of a year. We have to have some kind of vision that can carry our society into this new era. There'll have to be a new era. We have to break the lines of identity politics and instead identify political objectives around alliances that are not associated with a particular identity. I think one of the problems we have in Israel is the fact we have religious parties. In other words, you identify your politics with your religion. I don't think that's the proper way to go. You have to have some kind of new political paradigms, and you have to pretty much leave behind much of the tensions that boiled over before this war started. The, the history of the state of Israel and the year before the uh, war started, before October, was really bad. It looked like the country was going to a revolution. There were, there were men who were real heroes in the, in the uh, military who said they're not going to serve anymore. And people were really taking very radical positions, all kind of identity politics. And the um, it's, it was the dominant feature 
of the left-wing and particularly, I think, progressive politics. So there says the in a political response, you have to adopt a countercultural political identity, and it's become pretty much that way with conservative groups, because people are identifying with. Um, certain attitudes, and they stuck that way, like religious attitudes or nationalist ideas. So the uh, thing that, that, that this hasn't been working in Israel, the, the, uh, this has happened, I think, in a lot of Western democracies. So the damage to politics is pretty much, uh, I think, twofold. But the there's no longer the way people look at each problem should be on its merits. That means that even good political ideas could be vetoed because of who proposes it, and not whether or not the idea is a good one. And a corollary to that is that politics descend in sort of an us-versus-them dynamic. So what happens is, the, the the political camps become pretty much um, hateful of each other. I guess that's the best word to use. The uh, in Israel, the left and the right have largely spit off into political identities. The uh, although some of this is is local, it parallels much of the global trend in politics. So. I think the what happened on October seventh should make us stop and think. The uh, there there are political and social tensions bubbling under the surface, and we don't want these things to come out again when this war is over. The uh, the I I don't know what the solution is. We can't be political. Polarize we as we were in the past. That is simply not good, because the, the country was falling apart. There are major issues in issue that we can we can organize around. the The first step would has to has to do, I believe, with security. Every Israeli citizen expects focus and expertise regarding security issues, whether they are residents of the Gaza border communities or the northern towns in the Galil or any of the cities within the range of Hezbollah rockets or settlers in, in Judea and Samaria, they will be, these, the idea is to build trust and and it will require more open and transparent communication and a clearer presentation of Israel's strategy and its vision for its security. The, for example, take, take security. In the years come, there'll be no greater Zionist mission and rebuilding life in those communities across the Gaza border and on our northern border. The uh, residents should not return uh, uh, to these areas, but they have these areas before these areas are prepared for them. 
In order to achieve this, the country will have to invest and prioritize. Now, we learned something, and this happened since this war began, that there could well be a mental health problem here in Israel. As at a certain level, the entire country has experienced trauma. The, the Hamas invasion resulted in tremendous national feelings of emotion. The, maybe the whole country will not end up in a post-trauma community, but we have to really think about the future. We'll have to double the benefit of improving the state of the nation's mental health. And now, the truth of the matter is that the mental health area in Israel was badly in need of investment even before the war. But it, the, we have to really invest in mental health more than ever before. And I think another thing that's really important, the, there's too much power in the central government in Jerusalem. Power has to be spread to the communities and local governments. That will build social capital and take the strain off the government ministries. We have to reduce the power of the state because it failed catastrophically in October. So the, 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 the citizenry of Israel has shown the ability as individuals to respond to crisis. So we, we want the government to wake up and become more professional, like no more political appointees in public service. And there has to, there has to, be, there has to be a real merit-based positions in the government. The government needs to focus attention on the services of education, health, and welfare. So that may require reshaping and resizing the government. And what's happened is we are going through a traumatic period, and we have to learn from it. The, um, For example, but many of the really amazing young people who served in the Gaza should go into public service. The, the, the things have to change in Israel. The war, this war was traumatic, and to go back to things the way they before will bring another tragedy upon us. We must learn from this war how to reshape Israel as a country. I, I certainly don't have answers, but there's no doubt that things cannot remain the same as they were before October 7th. People should put their minds toward that now. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon. I woke up this morning and there were photographs, pictures, on the front page of the Jerusalem Post of 36 soldiers who have been killed in the war in the last couple days. This is a tremendous price to pay. With the whole state of Israel woke up this morning to a very difficult update. Among the best of our country who volunteered to defend the homeland were killed defending the homeland. One of the most difficult days since the outbreak of the war. And we have to learn the necessary lessons to do everything to preserve the lives of our soldiers. For the sake of our lives and for the sake of their memories, Israel cannot stop fighting until absolute victory. There is no substitute for absolute victory. This is a mind-numbing loss. We thought we were at peace three months ago. We're now a little more than a hundred days into a war with no end in sight, and yet it seems that the people are remain strong despite the tragedy. This is a disaster, it's a tragedy, and you would think that a lot of people would say, well, that's too much in too short a time. However, turns out that the spirit was summed up in a poignant letter one of the fallen soldiers, who was a 35-year-old father of four, he left a letter to be opened after his death. He wrote, and I quote, Our overwhelming victory is more important than anything else, so please continue to work with all your might so that our victory is as overwhelming as possible. This message to keep fighting despite the course is one a message that's often heard at the funerals of fallen soldiers as well as in conversations with soldiers and reservists who are fighting in Gaza. The message is really simple. It's difficult, it's painful, and that we have to fight until Hamas is defeated, until the hostages are released, and until Israelis can return to their homes. Now, in, the, in various parts of the world, 
even well-intentioned people are starting to tell us that we have to stop. It's not true. Israel is fighting because its people were murdered, mutilated, and raped. Israel is fighting to get back those hostages taken by a terrorist regime. Israel is, in fighting, is fighting to ensure that the terrorists can never do this again. And Israel is fighting to send a message that Israel will simply do what is in our best interests, no matter how long it takes and what it costs. This is a war of no choice. All of Israel's war, wars have essentially been wars of no choice. We're paying a high price, and but we've paid a price each time. Over the years, Israel's been lauded for its resilience, and this is true. What is resilience? It's the ability to absorb blows and not let them throw you off your objective of what you're trying to do. Israel demonstrates its strength daily, on the front and on the home front. This is going to be a prolonged campaign. It'll take patience. And in any war, there are ups and downs. There are peaks and valleys. The tragedy this week of all these deaths, uh, it's a valley. But there'll be we look forward to the achievements. We have to implement the lessons learned, mourn the losses, while not allowing the pain to prevent Israel from pursuing a goal that is necessary if it hopes to survive. It must destroy our enemy once and for all. Those who die tragically died in pursuit of this aim. We must destroy the enemy so that we can have a future. The terrible thing to wake up in the morning, open the headlines and see pictures of fine young men who are no longer with us. Uh, interestingly enough, I looked at the, uh, the soldiers who were killed and the ages of the killed soldiers were 23, 37, 25, 29, 22, 23, 26, 29, 35, 24, uh, 35, 40, 32, 33, 33, uh, 35, 27, and 28. The best of our young men died defending us. And this is the price we pay for our freedom. It is a terrible price, but it is a price that must be paid. We live Israel is, it lives in a dangerous part of the world. 
Someone once described Israel as a nice place and a bad neighborhood. That's who we are, that is what we are, and it is indeed, unfortunately, costly. But this is the reality in which we live and the price we pay for Jewish independence. Up until 1948, we had 2,000 years without Jewish independence. And we have it now. It is costly. It is unfortunate. But it is a reality with which we must live. By the way, I must add one thing. I look at the names of the places from which the killed soldiers came. They came from Moshavim, they came from Ramat Gan, they came from Kiryat Arba, they came from central Israel, they came from Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv, from Givetayim, from Bnei Nekalim, from Karnei Shomron, where I used to live myself, Rosh Ayan, Herzliya, Zichron Yaakov, Yoknaam, Haifa, Pardeshana, Rishon Lezion, Kibbutz Misulot, and another second one from Karnei Shomron. These men who fell represent all of Israeli society and came from all parts of Israel, including settlements. We are all in this together, and I would like to think that the very fact that we are all involved, including the list of dead, will have an effect on politics after the war. We have perhaps have reached a tipping point. It is also to be noted that we're on four months into the war, and the death count among soldiers is almost double that of the number of hostages still being held by Hamas. Hamas is still lethal. He can fire rockets into Israel. We know of no plans from the Knesset of what to do the day after. We have to know, and our government really has to define what the aims of the war are. My understanding is the aim of the war is the total destruction of Hamas. Unfortunately, there are those who say that Israel can't eliminate Hamas, and uh, there's there's those who say that eradicating Hamas is not possible. The family's frustration and alarm are growing, and we really have to know what we are doing. The, it, it, we know we must have leadership in the government that defines the objectives of the war and lets the people know what these objectives are. It people are willing to suffer, people are willing to take loss, but they must have a leadership 
that defines the objectives. Otherwise, we're going to be in big trouble, and we can't allow that to happen. And just a final thought on this matter. The Right now, with this unanticipa unanticipated invasion on October 7th and the massacre, but the, so far, the grief has unleashed the best of the people of Israel collectively. Day by day, our military, political, and spiritual challenges align in the same direction. This is a very important moment for the state of Israel, not just to win this war, but to know what direction we wish to take afterwards, what kind of government we want, what the objectives of our government should be. This is a turning point in the life of Israel. And I want to say something historically, because we are obviously at a turning point in our history. During the first 18 years of Israel's existence, from 1948 to 1966, Israel resettled 700,000 Jewish refugees who were expelled from Arab lands and built them permanent homes throughout the country. And despite ongoing violence and attacks from our neighbors, Israel founded the only democratic nation in the Middle East. We built a state-of-the-art defense force that protects us from numerous incursions and attacks we did not seek unprovoked military engagements with the Arabs. Israel was forced to again and again defend itself from Arab aggression. And despite these provocations, by the way, and it's important, Israel never indiscriminately launched rockets into surrounding Arab civilian territory. That is not what the Arabs have done. Upon taking full control of Gaza, the Palestinian Authority dismantled the hothouses that formed the basis for a profitable agricultural business. In place of self-sufficiency, the, 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 uh, Israel has to supply Gaza with electricity and water because they themselves cannot do so. The rulers of Gaza, the first the Palestinian Authority, which is, was kicked out by Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, never built houses for the Palestinian refugees. They never built a civil society. They have no idea what democracy is. They have no idea what the rule of law is, and uh, they had an election, and the president who in a four-year term has been now in the 18th year of his four-year term, and the uh, this is what the Arabs have done, and 
had they imitated what the Jews did from 1948, they would have a flourishing society. The, 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 but instead, they have chosen a leadership, or maybe the leadership has been enforced upon them, but the recent, recent, recent um, consensus taken showed that 75 to 80 percent of the Arab population supports Hamas. So they could have built a, a, a Garden of Eden in the Middle East with seaports to the rest of the world and built a flourishing society. They have chosen nothing of this kind. These are the people with whom we are dealing. These are the people who have attacked us. This, sadly, is the, is the actuality on the ground. It's unfortunate, but we, it's true, and we have to act accordingly. Instead, they have built a society in which, according to the UN, there are 5.4 million Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza, who are considered refugees, and they are fall under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to take care of them. The UN uh, Relief and Reworks Agency is the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees and their descendants. So they are the only refugee agency in the world that caters to third and fourth generation refugees, millions of whom have never lived in the territories they're considered refugees from. UNRWA data says it has up 706 schools, employees almost 20,000 educational staff, and works in over 320,000 medical facilities. The, what these agencies are doing is perpetuating Palestinian suffering by preventing the population from acclimating anywhere else. The UNRWA oversees a big part of the education system in Gaza, and it encourages the refugees to continue to be refugees. There are the uh, it, interesting that the uh, a report came out, and it showed that 82 UNRWA teachers in 30 schools were involved in drafting, supervising, approving, printing, and distributing hateful material to Palestinian students. And that is the people that we are facing now. And therefore, we have no choice but to win a total victory over these people. I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen afterwards. I don't even know if they're planning what to do afterwards. One thing is for sure, we must achieve total victory against Hamas in Gaza. At the same time, keep an eye on what's happening on the Lebanese border. 
and what happens in Gaza will affect the Lebanese border also. We're living in a very difficult situation. There are no two ways about it. But we, we must keep our resolve and our faith in God. And in the final analysis, we will be victorious. These are very difficult times. But with help and faith in God, we will prevail. Until next time, Jay Shapiro, signing off. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel.